And then a woman came up and she said, you must really love your son. And I said, oh my God, I do. I love him so much. He's my life. And she just looked me straight in the eye and she said, everything you're doing is killing him. You might as well hand him a gallon of vodka. Welcome to episode 322 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by George and Diana. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, George and Diana, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we'd like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. Joining me today is Deborah. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Deborah. Thank you, Spencer. I have uh, a reading I would like to share. I shared it recently in my parents' meeting, and it is something that I read a long time ago. It's available on the Al-Anon website, and it is a letter that was written by a woman named Shelley who wrote it to herself from her higher power. So I will just share that letter. Dear Shelley, you want to hear from me about letting your son go. You are not abandoning him as much as you may feel like it. You are simply transferring his well-being from your care to mine. It was never my intention for you to direct, guide, and control his life. That is my role. Yours in the beginning was to love him, protect him, and teach him. You've done that. He was never yours to keep. To have peace, you must let him go. Your stubborn self-will only gets in the way of the plans I have for him. I know it is not your intention to interfere, but you are. You are not all-wise and all-powerful. You cannot remove his disease. You cannot love him to wellness. Only I can do that. You must trust that I care for your son's well-being. You must trust that I love him more than your humanly love. My thoughts, my ways, my plans are bigger than you can comprehend. Your lives are so short, yet you waste much time in worry and fear. Yes, your son may cut his life short. That is not my intention, but it is his choice. He must trust me also and seek to have a relationship with me. Only then can I work in his life. I will not force myself on him or you. I'm more than willing to be involved in your lives, but only to the degree that you let me. We both know what a struggle trusting me has been for you. You can't make it easier for your son to trust me, to find me on his own, and he's doing that to the best of his ability. Let him do that. Get out of the way. Love him as my child the way I love you. But let him go so that he can be himself, whoever that may be. We're in this together. You can come to me anytime to tell me your worries and concerns. I'll listen. I always have. But I may choose to be silent. That's my way of stretching you and growing you. I know you love your son, and I love you for that. But ultimately, he is my child, and I know what's best for him. And trust him to me, and you will grow. You will find the peace you want. You have so much in your own life to focus on. Focus on growing yourself and let me worry about your son. And it is signed, loving you always, your higher power. That's a very powerful letter. For me, the the message of 
letting go is not giving up. It's just giving over to the care of his higher power. I think it is really important. When I was letting go of my desire, my need to care for, to fix my wife, that would would have been <laughs> reassuring. I didn't have that faith at that point. I knew that, that I couldn't fix it, but I wasn't sure that there was a higher power that could. And that's something that I came to through working this program. I know you've written into the recovery show a number of times about your struggles with your son. And so I imagine that this letter really speaks to you. Yeah, it really does. I think my sponsor gave me this letter probably 10 years ago. Uh And it was helpful at that time. I, I read it and I, I, intellectually got it. I did not emotionally embrace it. Right. It made a lot of sense to me that that was true, but I, I just couldn't emotionally connect to it. I couldn't emotionally completely let go. And after he had a long period of sobriety. So I kind of, you know, like, okay, I've got it. It's that what do they call it? The, the rainbow period or something or pink cloud. Pink cloud. Period. Yeah. No, that, yeah. that, that does make it harder. Doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, we've then, got it. And then boom. Yeah. We've got it. we got it. We don't got it. And you, I really became complacent and I was one meeting a week. I'm good. I wasn't doing much service work. Called my sponsor once a month. I mean, I really got, yeah. I got very complacent and with his multiple relapses over the last couple of years, just in the last 24 months, really, I found this letter one day. I was attending meetings every day and sometimes twice a day and really trying to take care of myself. And I, I got back to an old book I hadn't looked at in a long time. And this letter was in there mm. and I just reread it, reread it, reread it, started taking it to meetings, started reading it out loud. I keep it on my kitchen counter now. It really helps me because I think even though I sometimes can't let go and I sometimes slip, it 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 restores me. It gives me a moment of, okay, God's really got him, which for me, that's my higher power. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's been helpful for me. Yeah, you were talking about that period of sobriety and feeling like you had it and I have some friends in the program that have recently experienced the breaking of that, right? That it's like I came to the program, eventually my loved one found sobriety and everything was easier at least. And then there was relapse. And for for both of them, both of my friends who have had this happen recently, they recognized that even though life in relapse of their loved one was harder, it was not nearly as hard and not nearly as damaging to their own emotional state as it had been. I don't know if you also experienced that when your son relapsed. You know, it it was interesting. I... 
it was harder in the sense that I did go immediately. It was almost instantaneous when I heard the drunk voice. Mm-hmm. That trigger, that yes. phone call, that confession, when I was very unprepared for it, just mm-hmm. did not expect it in any way. Good news was I wasn't having expectations. Bad news was I wasn't prepared. <laughs> I I immediately reverted to my old behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I immediately wanted to rescue. I immediately wanted to fix. I immediately wanted to write checks. I immediately wanted to drag him to treatment. It was so compulsive and so obsessive. But the the good news of having had this program in my life at that point for nine years, even though I had slacked off a bit, my slip wasn't as bad. It didn't last as long. I was able to recognize it where prior to Al-Anon, I thought that was the right behavior. That was normal, healthy behavior. And I did know enough to get to a meeting, call my sponsor, call Al-Anon friends so that I could get my head straight as much as possible. I would say it's not so much less painful for me, but it's shorter periods and I do less damage. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, let's go back in your story since that's part of what we're here for. Where do you start your story? You know, I start my story in my childhood and like I've heard in the rooms People often discover that they come from a family of alcoholics, and that's not what brought them to the rooms because they were unaware of it. And I'm one of those people. I knew my father drank. I knew my sister drank and had gone to AA. I knew my husband drank and died from liver failure. I never connected it to the word alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And I never had an awareness of, quote, family disease or its effects on me. So with my story, I really do start at the beginning. I start when I was a child. And that's been important for me to go back and understand that. So I'm happy to share it. So my story, I grew up in this very vibrant, exciting, loving home with my parents. And I had one sister, an older sister. My mother was very creative, elegant, well-educated, very loving. She loved to cook. She was the quintessential 50s and 60s mother. She cooked. She baked. She did floral arrangements. She did community involvement. She was a PTA mom. She taught her daughters everything. We had classes on Saturdays and manners and table setting and entertaining and music and dance and piano and We hated most of it. We complained (laughs) for most of it. As an adult, I really, really can look back and value what what she did. That was her idea of preparing us. Mm -hmm. Our father was this very accomplished optometrist. He did a lot of research with different, back then, unheard of contact lens companies and things. He was really funny, very playful, very happy guy, loved by everybody. He was a big leader in the community. We lived in a very small rural town. He actually founded, in conjunction with being president of Leader Dogs for the Blind, the Leader Dogs for the Blind School. I think it's in Rochester, Michigan. I remember going there as a child. 
He was president of the Lions Club. He was a leader in the Masons. My sister was, I was just in awe of her. She was my older sister. She was brilliant. She was beautiful. She modeled. She sang in USO shows. She trained with a ballet company in Detroit. And I was, I was a pretty cool kid. I was funny. I was smart. I was happy. I was creative. I was pretty popular. I was a cheerleader. I was athletic. It was very artistic. And we attended all kinds of cultural events. We went to the ballet. We went to theater. We traveled across the country, you know, the long car trips, cross country with no air conditioning. I remember a lot of those. We went to church every Sunday morning. And it was, it was all about the appearances. We looked like the perfect family. And that was really important to my mother. So all of that is true. And all of that is how I grew up. And then there's the other dark side that was very painful. My father drank until he passed out every single night. Mm. How he maintained this persona. He was a highly functional alcoholic. I didn't know it at the time. but And he would pass out in a chair. And from about the age of, I, I know what house we were living in at the time. I can picture it. So I know I was about four or five years old. And it was my job every night to wake him up, to get him out of the chair, because my mother would, before she went to bed, yell that his esophagus was going to collapse. I had no idea what an esophagus was. And that he was going to die in the chair. And I believed that. I truly believed it. And I would lie awake for a very long time, waiting for my mother to fall asleep. And then I would go and start pulling and prodding and poking my dad until he finally staggered off to bed. Every once in a while, I would not do that, and I would wake up panicked in the morning and think, oh my God, he died in the chair, and of course he hadn't. He had found his way to bed eventually, or just slept in the chair and had gotten him, got ready, and went to his office. So my mother really, she pretty well detached from him with his behavior, but she sort of put it on me, I think. I was like, okay, she's going to bed, and she went to sleep. Yeah, I don't know necessarily call that uh, you know, that detachment with love that we talk about in Elena, no, would, would no. you? I think she was just mad. She yeah. was just pissed yeah. off and went to bed. And then to top it off, my father was a philanderer, and we all knew it. Hmm. My mother often had to go off and search for him in bars and restaurants. And oh, I even remember times we were at weddings and we had to go out into the parking lot and we'd find him in the backseat of a car with some woman. Hmm. Uh, and my mother always took me with her. I was the younger, so my sister always managed to find a way to escape. And uh, I sort of had to tag along, still young enough that I had to be there. So we'd go traipsing around all over Detroit, looking in bars and restaurants. And it was horrible. It was just very humiliating for me as a child. I'd blocked that out for a very long time. But I thought that was normal. I, I thought that's what them did. No, children don't know any different, do they? No, and and my mother would forgive him by morning. It was like we'd go through this horrific thing at night. She'd find him. Sometimes she'd stay and have a cocktail with him while with these other women. It was just crazy. Mm. And I would either wait in the car, be at the bar with him, having a Shirley Temple, or it, it was just a very odd thing. And and then the next morning, nothing had happened. Mm. She kiss him hello, goodbye, he'd go off to the office, we'd go off to school, and it, that was our life. It just seemed normal, and there were enough good times and good things that I think it sort of compensated, or we we went into denial on the bad and enjoyed the good. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And my mother, which is really no surprise, became a real rager. I mean, she would, boy, she could scream. Considering what she was dealing with, I sort of understand now looking back. But she would just, I mean, for hours, she'd go on a tangent about nothing that she was really angry about. But, you know, the bathrooms weren't clean properly. would just set her off. And she was off. We had a long ranch house and she would be chasing my dad or my sister from one end of that house to the other, sometimes with a broom, sometimes with a fire poker. It was just Mm. it was crazy. And I I would just try and stay under the radar. I just tried to stay out of the way. And I I kind of had two behaviors. I would either hide or I go into control mode and start chasing them and trying to make them to stop. It was a pretty crazy thing. And Friday nights were just brutal because my dad would always stop on his way home, drink either at the Lions Club or with the Masons or at the bar and get home late and would be pretty drunk. And my mother would just be at five. She was happy and waiting for him. By seven, she was cranking and irritated, and dinner was thrown out. By nine, nine thirty, she was in full blown rage, waiting for that door to open. And it was, it was, it was frightening. It was a lot of throwing of things and screaming. Both of them just screamed and name called. There was never physical contact, at least that I'm aware of, but it terrified me. Mm-hmm. And so I got into a habit. I called the Milford police almost. Every Friday night, it got to be a regular thing. And they would show up. Of course, my dad provided the eye care for the police department. I think there were only three officers and a sheriff. I don't know. There weren't very many of them back then. But he'd answer the door. I'd be hiding somewhere, holding the Bible. That was my thing. I would hold the Bible and pray. Hmm. And he would answer the door and say, hey, boys, what are you doing here? They'd say, well... Debbie called, <laughs> says you're, you and your wife are fighting. And out would, my mother would waltz out like Loretta Young or something, offer them coffee, act like nothing had happened. This just went on for, and they, you know, they'd smile, laugh, say, you know, you probably ought to check on your daughter. She's upset. And they'd leave. Hmm. But I never quit calling them. <laughs> it was like, I never gave up. Someday they'll make them stop. But usually just the act of that happening. Right. She'd go to bed and he'd keep drinking and pass out. I'd finally wake him up at two in the morning and he'd go to bed. So, you know, it finally would go away. And then we'd all go back as if it was normal. And my sister, even though she was older and and tried to escape a lot of it, she suffered horribly from all of this. She was seeing a psychiatrist by the time she was about 14. She was severely anorexic and suicidal Hmm. and actively drinking and using the Psychiatrist had her on tranquilizers for anxiety and stress. I used to get calls in the middle of the night from the police back in the day of landlines. And I would fake that I was my mother because they'd call after midnight. My parents were sound asleep and I would pretend I was my mother. I was only about 14 or maybe not even that. I was probably 12. I would pretend that I was my mother And they'd tell me whatever had happened. She'd wrecked a car. She had to be picked up, whatever. Mm. I would get in my parents' car and drive it down onto Main Street, go to the police station. I would walk in and say my mother was in the car. And I would get my sister. They all knew us. It was a local small town. And I would go get her out of whatever trouble she was in. And then I'd drive her home. Now, how old were you? I think the youngest I did that was about 14. But we had been... Our father taught us to drive very young. 
I remember driving the cars around on our property in the driveway and moving them to to wash the cars and maybe at 12, 13. And by 14, I, I didn't know how to drive, but I just did it. <laughs> I don't know. And half the time, my parents never even knew she'd been in trouble unless she wrecked a car. If she wrecked a car, they always found out. Yeah, I think that would be pretty obvious. Yeah. <laughs> and she wrecked all the cars. Trust me. She went through a lot of cars. But, you know, and her life just went spiraled out of control. There were a lot of suicide attempts. And uh, she drank heavily alcoholically for, for a good 20, 30 years of her life. But now has been sober for 30 years. And still goes to AA almost every day. She's very solid in her program. And we, you know, have a difficult relationship. We grew up in a lot of dysfunction, but see each other for holidays. And and she's been very helpful with my son. She at least gets it. She understands the disease, which has been a gift. So anyway, given all that craziness, I became the rescuer in the family. In a lot of ways, it gave me skills from a standpoint of discipline and organization and following the rules and over serving and being a perfectionist. But a lot of those things kind of served me well academically and professionally. They never worked well for me in my personal life. I I walked out at about 17 and just said, that said, I'm done. I got an apartment, started going to school, got a couple of jobs. I would occasionally get sucked back in. My dad ended up having cancer and got pulled back in to some degree when that was going on. But um, of course, then I did the only logical thing most of us do when we get out of that environment is promptly find a boyfriend who was an alcoholic and a drug addict and just thought he was the most awesome thing I'd ever found in my life. Got to have somebody to rescue. Yeah, so that sort of started my journey of dating dysfunctional men who needed me. And I would do long term. I'd stay with them three years, five years, seven years. And one was usually worse than the next. But at the same time, I still managed to complete my education, ended up getting into a great corporation, started climbing the corporate ladder. and, And I really thrived in business. Somehow I moderated that dysfunction when I was in a leadership role. I'm sure there were times it it would flare up, but overall, it made me highly successful. Then I fell in love with one of one of my employees' son. So my employee, 60s, and this was his son, and we had a child. He was just this loving, happy alcoholic. He, I never connected that he was like my dad, but he was just like my dad. <laughs> And he let me be fully in charge of everything. He was totally happy. He was a little older than I was. He was about 10 years older. And I could be the breadwinner, the wife, the mother, the bill payer, you know, plan all our social activities, tell him what to do, when to do it. And he pretty much did. And I just thought I'd hit the jackpot. I thought this was the greatest thing that had ever happened. He was happy. He was sweet. He was fun. And it just never occurred to me that he was passing out every night drunk. He was cheating on me and it was just, it was turning into a mess. And I was, I was doing the same thing, poking and prodding and getting him to go to bed. I had to be up at four thirty-five in the morning to either get on a plane or get to an office. And anyway, that was seven years into the relationship. We intentionally decided to have a child. That's what one does, right? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Oh, you're drunk every night. Let's have a baby. <laughs> that sounds like a good plan. 
just make sure the house is vacuumed when I get home. I'll be okay. <laughs> but that's kind of, you know, I maybe proverbial straw. I don't know. I was doing it all. And now I had a baby and had to have childcare and still had to work. And everything was on me. And, of course, his drinking was progressing, as it does. And couldn't trust him to pick up the baby, drop off the baby, do anything with the baby. And I just, it was like an eye opener. Like, what the hell am I doing? I remember coming home one day and he was sitting on the couch and he used to wear these night shirts instead of pajamas or a robe. He wore a nightshirt, which was kind of a, I don't know why, but he did. He'd still be in when I get home at seven o'clock at night. He'd be drunk on the couch in a nightshirt, happy as a clam, just having a great time drinking black Russians. And I just, boy, I got so sick of that. I just resented it, the resentment bill. But my career was was still just taking off. We ended up moving to Chicago. I got promoted. By this time, we were in Florida. We'd been in Florida for a long time. Then I get promoted to Chicago, to the home office. My career's taken off, and I'm still trying to manage and juggle all this. And now I've got an even bigger job. I have to travel all the time. We struggled for a couple of years in Chicago, and I just, I finally could not take it anymore. And we separated. We never ended up divorcing because within about a year and a half, he died from liver failure. And our son was only seven, and I was 43, 44 years old then. And it was, it was, incredibly sad and devastating, of course, horrible for my son. And mm-hmm. we'd been separated. So it was, you know, it it wasn't quite the same as if it had been, had we not had some separation. Anyway, it was a very painful time. Yeah. But again, I'm still at this point would never have said he was an alcoholic. I would have just said he drank too much. He drank too much and died from liver failure, but he's not an alcoholic. I don't think I knew what an alcoholic was. Right. Never. Right. Oh, I'm right there with you, though. Alcoholic? No. You know, she's not, like, drinking out of a paper bag under a bridge, right? Right. And still semi-functional. Yeah. Most of the time. Not always, but most of the time. And everyone loved him. He was just, you know, he was the party. I really thought when he passed... I, it was almost like a deep breath. Then my, my dad had passed away. I had several ex-boyfriends who had passed away, not while I was with them, but, you know, I just heard through the grapevine all had died from some alcohol-related problem. But I thought, okay, I, I'm done with this. I'm through with crazy people. I know not to date people who drink too much. I know not to have these people in my life. I'll just stay single for a really long time, focus on my career, and raise my son. And I thought, okay, crazy people are gone. And it kind of worked for about 10 years. Dated a little bit, not much. I was really pretty shell-shocked from from that type of life. And I had a very full life with a very active athletic son, a lot of hockey, a lot of lacrosse, and, and a huge career where I, I mean, I barely slept for many years. But anyway, my son gets to about 17, 18, senior year in high school. And I start catching a little alcohol. I start catching a joint here and there. I start, see, there's some alcohol and pot going on. And I 
thought, okay, semi-normal behavior teenager. We talked, and he'd been in a lot of counseling because of the death of his father. So we'd never quit going. He'd sort of matured through different levels of counselors. But we went through grief counseling when he was young, and I went through it. And then he'd stayed with counselors on and off through his teen years. So we had good communication skills and could talk openly about the drinking. He knew very much what had killed his father, although I still hadn't probably labeled it as alcoholism. But I, you know, alcohol is what killed your father. He'd never seen me overindulge. I drink socially, but I was very careful about not having an abuse of alcohol around him, thinking that's what would prevent it. <laughs> so. uh, yeah, totally, totally. If you learn to drink responsibly, you won't drink alcoholically, right? Yeah. But I really tightened the leash. I was frightened, and I thought, uh-oh, you know, this could be this could be the problem. And I did know that my son's father had his mother was an alcoholic. I I did I'd heard that language around their family. Mm-hmm. I did know that there was some history in the family. I kind of realized my sister was by this point in my life. So I'm in my 50s now, <laughs> finally figuring these things out. You'd yeah. think a smart woman could have figured it out before that, but no. Strong. Yeah. But I, you know, I started seeing this repetitive behavior with my son where all the great communication, all the counseling, he got caught drinking on campus at his school, lost his captain stripes in the hockey team was able to recoup them. But, you know, he started getting some consequences that I thought, okay, good. This is good. I took his car away senior year because I caught him with alcohol in his car. And that was rough. Made him ride the bus. I was, I was like the mean mom, as they used to say. (laughs) He had curfews. I mean, I, I I used to say, I've got him on a leash and it's a choke leash. And I truly believed that's all I needed to do. Yeah. I, I could see it was getting by the time he got into college, the first university, first semester. Oh, my gosh. Now he's out of he's out of state. He's out of my control. And it just went. He went hard and fast. I still was pretty naive. I, I remember flying from Chicago to Florida to his campus. I'd stay in a hotel. I flew down every month and drug tested him. Oh my. I was a lunatic. There's no doubt about it. I I truly believe, and he would test off the charts for THC, and then promise me he couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> every time, believe, every time. I used to buy so many of those things. I'm sure Walgreens thought I I owned a recovery house or something because I was buying drug tests wholesale level. It was crazy. We went through oh my god, three different universities, different states. Thousands of dollars, multiple cross-country rescue trips. I, I was flying out, driving him back. Oh, it was just, it was so painful. I ended up with two DUIs. And I find, and two counselors, and finally a fellow officer at my corporation pulled me aside one day and said, you need to go to this thing called Al-Anon. I said, gee, I've heard of that. A couple of counselors have told me, but what? I don't get it. He said, just go, please go. And I did. (laughs) I'm just so grateful to that man because he had gone through this with his son. Mm -hmm. And he he didn't tell me much about it. He just said, go. He said, go seven times. I'm just telling you. 
Seven times. Seven and seven. He goes, you know, you go. I, I wonder sometimes when they say, just go. And, I, and I've heard, you know, have my experience. I've heard the experience of friends in the program. And we each came in with a different expectation about what Al-Anon was for, what we were going to get out of it. And I wonder if, if they said, go to Al-Anon and, you know, you'll learn how you can live happy and free or serene or whatever, even though your loved one's still drinking and drugging. Would you go? No. <laughs> right? I thought they were a bunch of lunatics. Right? But they say, your counselor says go. They don't say why. They just say go. And you're like, well, I guess. Okay. And then you get here, you know, like, I don't understand, but it seems like, you know, for me, it was like, these people understand what's going on. So, okay. I don't know. I mean, how, how did that work out for you? I mean, how, what was your first seven meetings? <laughs> what, what was, what was your journey through the first seven meetings? Yeah. It, you know, it was really interesting. The The first one was a very small meeting. I think there were five people sitting around a table in the back of a church, you know, very typical in Illinois. And I walked into that one. And of course I had, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what, I had no preparation. Uh-huh. The only thing that was helpful is the, the man who told me about Al-Anon did share with me his son's story. And what had happened to his son, who was about my son's age, kind of similar story with the drinking and the pot. And and he did say, I don't remember his exact words, but it was like, it'll seem like they're kind of talking mumbo jumbo or something like that. He said, you're not going to get what they're talking about. But he said, I'm telling you, it helped my wife and I and my wife still goes all the time. He said, I don't go as often. But he said, I, I really think it'll help you. And he was credible to me. I don't know why counselors didn't feel credible to me. But the fact that he shared his story, the pain he and his wife had been in, I knew I was in the same pain. And I think I think in my mind, and this is just me being a control freak so terribly much at that time, I because th- he did tell me his son had found recovery. And I thought, oh, so if I go to this meeting, my son will get sober. Yeah. So that propelled me. Now, that wasn't what happened for years. Yeah. But, but that first meeting, something really in the meeting, it wasn't so much what happened. I I went in, sat down. They were all talking among themselves. It was a few minutes before the meeting, and they welcomed me as a newcomer. They told me I wouldn't fully understand. Someone would talk to me afterward, and they explained the crosstalk and not to do the crosstalk, and they'd go through the meeting. So they start their meeting. We go through the serenity prayer. They did their normal intro to the meeting, introduced themselves. And I think it was that particular meeting was a share your story meeting. So one of the members was sharing their story and their story was very similar to mine. Mm -hmm. That was helpful. And it was interesting. At least it wasn't a step meeting or something that would have been very confusing to me at the time. So I listened to her story. I I wanted to interrupt like a hundred times. Oh yeah. what What about that? But I knew they'd already told me not to do that. 
but I cried through the whole thing. The more she talked, the harder I cried. Mm -hmm. And when she finished her story where they would normally, I think her story was about 20 minutes. And then they normally, I, I found out later would have been sharing. Mm -hmm. They turned to me and let me share. Mm -hmm. And it was so helpful, but certainly not to them, I'm sure. But I just blubbered out this whole, everything that was happening, of course, talked about my son a lot, not so much about me, but they just let it go. They just let me unload that. I hadn't had any place safe I could do it. Nowhere. Yeah. And it was such, I hadn't told a soul in my real life what was going on with my son. And and I had no husband to share it with. I was totally alone trying to deal with it. So that was incredibly helpful. And then as I was walking out of the meeting, you know, they said, keep coming back. I think it was kind of an Illinois thing, do seven and seven, do seven meetings in seven days. Okay. So they kept saying, keep coming back, do seven and seven, and, you know. And I said, okay. And they gave me a list of meetings and, and gave me a list of phone numbers. And then a woman came up and she said, you must really love your son. And I said, oh, my God, I do. I love him so much. He's my life. And she just looked me straight in the eye and she said, everything you're doing is killing him. You might as well hand him a gallon of vodka. Wow. <laughs> I literally, the bubble over my head is saying, you fucking bitch. <laughs> I was just livid. I thought, who in the hell are you? I, I just stared at this woman. And she put her arms around me. I'm just standing there with my arms to my side singing, don't touch me, don't touch me. Yeah. She gave me this huge hug and she said, you are going to learn so much. Please keep coming back. Just try not to do what you're doing right now. Stop rescuing. And I was just like, oh, oh I was really angry. And I, I thanked her and I was gracious and I walked out and I just thought, yeah, right, lady, I'm never coming back to this meeting. <laughs> but there was, I thought about it all night and they gave me a newcomer's packet. Right. And in that newcomer's packet, there was a letter from the alcoholic and it was really good and kind of told me, don't rescue me, don't help me, don't trust me when I tell you I won't drink anymore. It, it, I can't even... I think that's what it's called. It's the letter from the alcoholic. And I thought, huh, maybe just maybe they're right. And what I'm doing is not working. You know, and I'm blowing through enormous amounts of money. So maybe I just need to keep going to these meetings and someone's going to tell me eventually what to do to help him. Thank God I went and I, I did a round of seven meetings in seven days and all the local meetings. I didn't travel in business and I just want to make sure I could get to those meetings. I was going to follow the rules. <laughs> they told me to do seven and seven. I was doing seven and seven. I eventually went back to that Monday night meeting and it became my home group. And my sponsor is still there and I still talk to her sometimes weekly if I'm in crisis or she's in crisis, but at least once a month. I learned so much. Oh, my God. And being able to let go in those meetings. I'm just so glad I stuck with it. Yeah. Even the little miracles of, oh, my God, I actually slept through the night. Just little things where I hadn't slept in weeks sometimes. 
because I just obsessed and worried. That early first year in Al-Anon probably saved my life. I was a wreck. And I had to put on a facade all day, every day with an enormous number of employees and be the, you know, leader and be confident and strong. And I was not. (laughs) If they had seen what the real Ed was doing, which, which also taught me, you never know what's happening to people. When somebody does something now that in the past I might have bristled at or resented or been frustrated about, I think, I don't have any idea what's going on in that person's life that may just be killing them right now. And it's just given, you know, a lot of things I've gained from Al-Anon and understanding it was disease. Oh, my gosh, what an eye opener. And I, I have to tell you, this was so funny. The more I heard them say that it's a disease, it's a disease. They can't help it. They can't help it. I thought, bullshit. This is not a disease. This is totally willpower. I can have one cocktail and not have any more. I, you know, this is ridiculous. And I started hearing about Dr. Silkworth and I started going to some open AA meetings. So I was trying to learn, okay, what is this disease thing? Mm-hmm. I, I was going to disprove it. I was like, I can do the research. I went, lo and behold, he figured it out in 1939. The AMA has revalidated it over and over and over again. They've actually refined their research. It is a disease and it's actually an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. And it is a chemical change. And it is, uh, in my opinion, it's also a mental illness. That helped me overcome a lot of my anger and resentment, probably more so of my sister, because I was never angry at my son. But I was really angry with my sister for many years, because I thought she just like, what an idiot. You've Mensa certified. <laughs> You're drinking yourself to death. And then I realized that's of course she doesn't want to do that. Nobody wakes up and wants to be an alcoholic. Who would want that life? Mm-hmm. And that I can actually love people when they have the disease. I don't have to love what they're doing. And learning that I'm not in control. Oh, my God, did I hate that. I really, really, really oh, yeah. hate that I wasn't in control. But I was very relieved to find out that I had a higher power who was in control of everything and that my loved ones had a higher power and that it wasn't me. That was a big shock. I truly thought I was in charge of all of them. Yep. And learning to take care of myself was a big thing and minding my own business. My favorite, I don't know if it's an official slogan, but my favorite phrase, hands off, pays off. Hmm. And it's so true for myself. So if I keep my hands off other people's stuff, their disease, their problems, the resulting issues, that pays off for me. Yeah. But when also when I, my hands are off, it pays off for them. When I let go of my now adult son, and I had a recent experience where I, man, I slipped big time. I was over coaches and I was doing a lot of crazy. I think you wrote to us about that. Yeah. And, and it wasn't until I stopped, he found his own way to a treatment center. He found his own way back to recovery. And today that's what he's got, which is great. I don't know if he will tomorrow, right. but it wasn't until I got the hell out of the way 
hardest thing to do as a parent. But I, I just, I, I finally realized again, this time it only took me three weeks instead of years. But after three weeks of wasting a lot of money, time and energy for my own peace of mind, a lot of it was to satisfy my own high anxiety. Mm-hmm. He's 3000 miles away and I needed somebody who had eyes on him. And I probably greatly interfered. He might have gotten to recovery two weeks earlier. Who knows? I'll never know because I interfered. Right. Thank God I caught it. And thank God he found his own way. But that whole, it's not mine to solve. It's not, I can love him. I can be there for him, but not in the way that I'm interfering. And it's, it's just taught me a lot. But that whole hands-off pays off. I have to say that over and over again. I alternate between that as my mantra and then doing the serenity prayer. <laughs> Those two keep me, before I take any action, I make myself do an hour of that. And usually I'll have better thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. My daughter was talking about a similar kind of a, a thing where she said she got this from her rabbi. He says, if you're trying to change a habit, figure out something you can do that interrupts it. He said, for example, if you're trying to stop smoking, instead of telling yourself, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to smoke, say, I give myself permission to smoke, but I have to take a walk around the block first. Yes. And it sounds like, You've got a similar thing there. It's like, when I want to interfere, I take some time to pray and meditate. And that interrupts that old habit. Yes, very much so. And I have to, because my old habit is as natural as breathing. Right. It is caretaking. I took that role on in my family of origin and took it to a level of obsession and perfection as I grew up and continued to surround myself with people in need. Yeah. Taking care since the age of four or something. Yeah. It's, it's instinctual. So I've learned that if it feels instinctual to me, it's probably (laughs) wrong. It's probably not the right thing to do. So the, the ones that feel uncomfortable, the don't take the call, breathe through it. You can call him back in a few minutes. That's really uncomfortable. Take the call. Find out if he's okay. That's instinctual. Nothing's going to happen in one minute, five minutes, 60 minutes. I've learned to turn my phone off. I learned that about my second year in Al-Anon because I was whining about, I keep getting these calls from my son. And some woman finally said, have you ever thought about turning your phone off? (laughs) I thought, huh. God, that's a novel idea. I can, and I turn off my phone at night now. Mm. Nothing's going to happen. Now, when he was young, of course, I needed to have my phone yeah. on. I was a parent. He is not a child. He's a 31-year-old man. Yeah. And he's 3,000 miles away. Right. He can call me. He can call 911. And they might actually be able to do something. Yeah. He actually did about 12 times during this last round. I'm sure they got very sick of him because he never went. But 
But Whatever. They, yeah. Well, at least they kept coming. You know, and I, a woman that uh, has been, I think she's 30 years in Al-Anon uh, down here in Florida. And she says, she has a little mantra. She says, wait a week and a day. Hmm. No matter what, wait a week and a day. Now, that's a long damn time. Yeah. I modify that, but. That whole idea of waiting, and there have been things, in particular if it's financial things, I do have people who will, on occasion, including my son, he doesn't do it much anymore, but on occasion, there will be a financial need. Might be big, might be little, might be valid, might not be, might be their own mess, might not be mine. But I use that on financial requests. I wait a week and a day. It almost always resolves itself. Hmm. It's amazing how people, people are very resourceful. If you really do want to do things on their own at the end of the day, but the quick, easy way is because I used to be the yes person. Oh, okay, sure. Mm -hmm. I had a counselor recently. I was struggling so much with anxiety. I finally tried a counselor again, and I actually found one who's very much into 12-step programs. Someone from Al-Anon had gone to her. so. I thought, okay, I'll give this a try. She came up with something very interesting. She said, when when you have this compelled feeling to rescue, it's really not you. The mature 68-year-old you, who is 12 years Al-Anon treated, responsible, accountable, responsible, mature adult, stepped aside, and your five-year-old, who does nothing but control. She has no tool but control. She steps in, and that five-year-old's got a checkbook. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Holy crap. And she said, would you ever give your five-year-old a checkbook? I said, no, never going to happen. She said, then stop doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Wait until your true self is back in your body, back in your mind, and then make decisions. Sometimes it's just pause or halt. We use that acronym all the time, halt. And it really does work. That's been huge for me. And I, when faced with a crisis, I sometimes throw it all out the window. And boy, I'm off and running. But at least now I can catch myself. Well, that's a, that's a journey that you've been on. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, it, and I didn't get into Alan until I was fifty-seven. But you got here. Yeah, and I and I'm sure it was the right time for me. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I, I, I was forty-seven. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's. I mean, thank God for this program, and thank God that I keep working it. And you know, every time there's a crisis, there's something that happens. I grow and learn from it. I, I'm so sad that my son had to go through this and is going through it. Yeah. But it actually took me back to reworking my program, taking care of myself, getting back into really what's important that's going to make me have a happy, rewarding, peaceful life at this point in my life where I'm finally retired. I have a comfortable life. I deserve to enjoy it. I don't need to be on vigil and rescuing anymore. It's my turn, <laughs> you know, and it's that caretakers make 
baby makers. That's another phrase that resonates for me a lot. And uh, I did that to some degree. My son, only child, father died, poor baby. Let me take care of him. You know, now he is a responsible, mature adult. Unfortunately, he's got a disease that the nature of the disease is relapse. But, you know, I pray that maybe this is his time. Don't know. But I pray that it is. You know, those long periods of sobriety are just such a blessing. It's like, oh, thank you, God. Life is easier for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your story. After a little break, uh, we'll continue with our lives in recovery where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives. You picked us some songs. What's your first one here? Yeah, the first one is a Kelly Clarkson song, and I actually had not heard this and then looked up the lyric. I knew the title was Sober. I thought, well, let me see what that's all about. So I looked up the lyrics and then played the song. And I think for Kelly, it was actually about a love relationship. But the words in the song, the lyrics, to me, could really apply to recovery. And there's one line in it. It's, nothing is real until I let go completely. And I I loved that because I do let go and then I pick it back up. And then I let go and then I take it back. So letting go completely is really the key to finding happiness. And then there's another line that says, I picked all my weeds, but I kept the flowers. And that just reminded me of step four and how we have to work through our character defects, but find our flowers too. We have strengths. And so I hope everyone enjoys this song. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? And uh, a couple things that came up for me this week. I went to my meeting this morning. Today's Saturday. We were do- talking about step six, which is became entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Or we're entirely ready. I forget exactly. And we read from the book Paths to Recovery, and then, you know, share our thoughts of the moment. And for me, you know, when I first encountered step six, I was like, what's the work here? You know, became entirely ready. I mean, how do I do that? Right? Yeah. How do I become entirely ready? I don't know. You know, I went through it. I was like, okay, well, I don't know. I guess I'm ready, right? Which is, I, I Referenced the uh, the reading in the Alcoholics Anonymous book, uh, where step six is about one paragraph, which says, we did step five, and we look at all our things, and we're ready to have them removed, and if we're not, we go back to step five. It's more or less what it says. <laughs> and I was like, that that's not really helpful. And it was some years later, I was listening to a talk by these AA guys, Joe and Charlie, who did a sequence of talks on the steps and probably other things, but I'm, I've heard some of their step talks at least. And they were talking about step six, six and seven, and they said, look, this, this step, step six, is actually where your change starts. Up to this point, you've been, you know, admitting you were powerless realizing there can be help, saying, yes, I'll accept that help, 
looking at yourself, being honest about yourself. That's steps one through five rephrased. And now you're ready to change. And step six and seven are about really accepting your readiness to change and asking for help in changing. When I heard that, it really opened this step up for me in understanding that for me, a lot of what step six is about is owning all of my character aspects, defects, assets, whatever you want to call them. Because for me, if I don't accept that I am who I am as I am right now, I can't honestly ask for change. And so step six became a a step that's really full of work because it requires maybe going back to step five, where I admit to myself the exact natures of my wrongs and, and really accepting that and owning that. It's been a really powerful step for me as I encounter new character defects or as old ones rear their heads again. It's a good meeting for me today, I guess. Using recovery outside of meetings, you know, applying these principles in all our affairs, as step 12 says, work continues to be, have some drama this week. So I think I talked before about how one of the members of my team who'd been with the, was the senior member aside from me, was taking a promotion and moving to another team. And so having to accept that and, and figure out what's first things first, one of our slogans, like, okay, this is going to happen. How do we make the best of the time we have left? Right. Which is basically making sure that all of the knowledge that she has is somehow either written down or at least given to somebody else before she's gone. And, and then on Monday I came in and, her manager of, of the people who work for me, they're like team lead, but he's the manager of, anyway, it's, it's one of those matrix organization things. He said, Hey, you got a few minutes. Can you come into my office? And, and I have to tell you something. He said, this other person has given notice and we'll be leaving this week. This person was actually out sick the first two days of the week. Well, because the kid was sick and he said, I'm very inclined when they come in on Wednesday to say, today's your last day. Clean out your desk and go. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> 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 like, it never rains, but it pours, you know. And so as of yesterday, or actually, well, as of Wednesday and then yesterday, my team is down to me a guy who started in September and a contractor who started a few weeks ago. Wow. And yeah. And this is like, okay, so I could just freak out and, and say, woe is me. And fortunately, I guess I was going to say, unfortunately, but fortunately I've learned in this program that, you know, when this sort of crap happens, because this sort of crap happens, whether it's at work or in your family or with your loved ones, what I need to do is say, what's the next step? What do I do now? What do I do today? What do I do just for today? What do I do one day at a time? And move forward. I don't know how I would have dealt with this 
before I came to program, but I'm sure glad I've got these tools. That's all I'm going to say at this point. We interviewed uh, a potential candidate on Thursday and agreed that this guy looks pretty good and maybe he'll say yes when we offer him the position. That would help. But then, you know, he's a new guy, right? <laughs> so work changes. And, and one of the things that, that actually happened was like, we have goals. And there is no way we're going to meet our goals with half the team gone. And one of my colleagues stepped up and said, well, what my team is working on is actually in support of a goal that another team has. And let's pool our forces and work on this together. Oh, that's awesome. And I was like, oh, wonderful. You know? <laughs> yes. And so, so we're doing that and that's, that's helpful, but we, we did have to, you know, I've had to say no to some things. It's hard for me. There's this new thing like, Hey, can we do this new thing? I'm like, well, that's a great new thing, but no, I learned how to say no in Al-Anon mm -hmm. or I learned how not to say yes, because I'm a people pleaser, I guess maybe is the other way to put it. So yeah, using these, these principles in all my affairs, Helps to keep my life not too crazy. Even even when the crazy happens, I don't have to dive. Oh man, somebody in a meeting had a wonderful expression that I diving headfirst into batshit crazy or something. I don't remember exactly, <laughs> but I was like, I can relate to that. I can totally relate to that. that. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So how how is your how is your recovery recently? Yeah, Sunday actually started off my week just not with a meeting, but it was actually a celebration of one of the Al-Anon members for her 90th birthday. Oh, so the, the, yeah, and it's at a big 24-hour AA Al-Anon club mm -hmm. down here where I live. And she's been around for a long time, originally up north and then down here. She's an amazing woman. I just met her within the last maybe two or three months. She's a very strong member in the parents group that I go to now. So they had a surprise birthday party set up for her. Over a hundred people from Al-Anon and AA came. Mm. It was a huge, it was fabulous. And they truly surprised her. But instead of yelling surprise, we opened with singing happy birthday. So we did not give this 90 year old woman a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, it was amazing. And she's been in Al-Anon 50 years. She has an amazing, and that was just such a great way to start off the week. Yeah. Uh, it was very informal. There were no speakers or anything like that. It was, but it was all, everyone in the room was in a program. Everyone was polite and everyone was nice and everyone was kind to each other. And mm. there was no competition. It was it was like a meeting, but no meeting content. And it was just a really feel good kind of a thing. And I thought, oh, it just it, it really I left there just smiling. It was just and everybody brought fabulous food. And it was just really a nice, nice thing. So anyway, that started off my week. And then Wednesday is one of the parents meetings that I go to. So I attended that meeting. And it was a topic meeting. And the topic was shame. Hmm. Yeah, it was really interesting. At first, I, you know, they said what the topic was going to be and the woman who was sharing on the topic. I wasn't quite sure where 
where she was going to go with it. Mm-hmm. But she shared some very personal story about the shame she had felt about growing up with alcoholic parents and the shame she felt having an alcoholic husband. And then, and now she has alcoholic adult children, alcoholic and addicted adult children. It, it was really powerful to hear her talk about it. I, I, and it was interesting then the sharing around the room. I didn't feel shame as a young person because I was so deeply in denial and we pretended so much on the outside. No one knew. So mine was a little different. I was probably filled with shame inside the walls of my house, but outside I wasn't. But I did go through it with my son being embarrassed to tell anyone. Oh, my son's an alcoholic. He's got to go to treatment. He's, you know, I was. Mm-hmm. It, it was an uncomfortable feeling. And the other thing that came out that was really good for people to talk about, I think, because the sharing, it, it triggered a thing around the room. People outside of al we all now know that we did not cause our children to have this disease. We can't control it. We can't cure it. The three yes. C's, that whole thing. We know that. We might occasionally still feel a little guilt or a little something, but we we do have our recovery that helps us know and understand that we did not cause this. But the world outside of 12-step programs doesn't know that. And we all have a lot of people that are not in program. All the untreated, I've heard them called earthlings. I've heard them called a lot of my dearest friends have no need to be, or at least believe they have no need to be in a 12-step program. And I have had those questions. Well, do you think your son's an alcoholic because you worked? <laughs> I'm like, what? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually had a woman in Al-Anon who was in her second or third meeting asked me that. Do you think it's because you had nannies when you're, no, no, but please keep coming back. Yes. We'll share with you how this works. You but know, when you, get, when you get a question like that, I, I have to wonder, is she asking that for herself? That's a fear that she has. Her daughter had already died from addiction. Oh, boy. And she was new into treatment. And I, I, she is now a couple of years into program and in a very different place and has a much better understanding. But I I understood people outside of program. I'm sure I thought that prior to coming to program. I'm sure I thought I did something to cause my son to be this way. I'm sure I thought. Other people's kids who were dabbling with illegal drugs, I thought, well, they're just not good enough parents. Maybe they didn't go to church enough. Or I had I had those thoughts and judged. Yeah. So it opened up this whole dialogue in this parents meeting that really helped people share about how they're uncomfortable when they're asked those questions, how to address those in a better way, how to truly know you did not cause this. Because guilt can drive guilt and fear can drive some really bad behavior that contributes to the disease. And I work very hard to not feel guilty and to not let fear make my decisions. Yeah. Because I know they aren't going to be good ones. So that Wednesday, that was a really good meeting. I think it was helpful to every parent in the room. There were about 50 people in this meeting. It's a very well-attended meeting, and it was good. And then Friday was my home meeting, and it was our step meeting, and I was leading on step two. We do it by the month, so February, step two, the last Friday of the month. 
And of course, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. A lot of hope was shared in the meeting. You know, I said that when I first was working the steps, the first time around, I I struggled so much with step one. I didn't want to be powerless over anything, whether it was alcohol or anything else in my life. And I certainly didn't want to say my life was unmanageable. I thought I was totally in control of everything. So it took me a long time to get through step one, and I still have to go back often. Yeah. But step two was when my sponsor, the first time we were working the steps, finally let me move to step two after many painful sessions on step one. And once I read it and and realized, oh, this is where the hope is, and I kind of kiddingly said to her, I went, oh, thank you, God. She goes, yes, exactly. That's what step two is. <laughs> I went, oh, now I get it. I'm not in control, but he or she is. And it was, you know, that to me, step two is all about hope. That's where our hope starts. And I'm so glad it's in the, I'm sure the wisdom of the people who wrote these steps, and that's why it's got to be right up front. You know, it's, it's where we realize we, we don't have to carry all these burdens, you know, it's, and, and something is going to restore us to sanity. It is going to be okay. And that's that's such a relief to to know and to believe that. So we had real good sharing on that. And that was that was good. I'm I'm kind of glad that a lot of the stuff that I've struggled through in the last couple of months with my son all sort of happened toward the end of the year and now the beginning of the year, because I'm right back to the beginning of the steps. And that's where I need to be. It's what's gonna help me. Thank you. Upcoming, I'm soliciting shares for a topic uh, might be titled, What is your meeting like? Or what is a meeting like? Somebody suggested this. You know, meetings are a little bit different as you move around from one city to another, from one state to another, sometimes from one meeting to another within a city. And there's a lot of different ways in which we meet. They're all Al-Anon meetings. And I don't know what they all are. I've experienced several different kinds of meetings. So if you want to call in or email and share, you know, what's your meeting like? How does it open? Is there a leader? Where do people sit? How is it decided who speaks? All kinds of, all kinds of things that, that are going to be different from one to another. Is it a step-based meeting? Is it just whatever people want to talk about meeting? Let me know, let us know, and I'll put that together. And you can leave a voicemail, send an email, and Deborah, how can people do that? Well, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, just let us know. Our website, which has all this information and notes for each episode, including um, this one, which will be at therecovery.show slash 322. I'm going to put links in there to the reading that Deborah shared at the beginning 
She also mentioned the letter from an alcoholic, and I think I found a link to at least one copy of that and the Al-Anon pamphlet that it's found in, which only costs 30 cents from the website. It's probably better to see if you can find it in your meeting. So those will all be in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 322, as will links to YouTube videos for the songs that Deborah has picked for us. And what's the next one of those? The next song we have is Demons by Kenny Chesney. And he's really referring to the demon of addiction in this song. But one of the lyrics is, when I am not chasing demons, demons are chasing me. It made me think about my inner demon, which is controlism. Prior to Al-Anon, when I didn't have a crisis or chaos in my life, I kind of missed the demon which is really what my sickness was. So I just thought this was an interesting song about the demons. Diane wrote with a question. She says, what is the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper? To have peace, it seems you have to live in a state of denial. I saw that, and I'm like, you know, that's a hard question, but, so I want to address from my own experience the the second part, to have peace living, you have to live in a state of denial, because I might have thought that, and probably did think that, if I even thought about having peace before I came into Al-Anon. I think by the time I got to Al-Anon, I was not at a point where I even thought that peace was in any way possible to have in my life, unless, you know, she just stopped drinking, (laughs) which wasn't happening. What I found here, and it took a while, but it didn't take a a whole long a while. I think I'd been in the program, mm, I'm going to say 10 months, during which my loved one had gone to treatment, had some long-term sobriety and relapsed. I was at a meeting, and after the meeting, I was talking to to friends, as we do, and one of them said, how are you? So there's a difference right there, because at the beginning, when somebody asked me how I was, I would have talked about how she was. But I was able to say, how am I? You know what? I wasn't angry all day. I wasn't in fear all day. I wasn't resentful all day. I wonder if this is what serenity feels like. And to me, that was my first experience of having peace, having serenity, even though the chaos was still there, that I could find it in the middle of the chaos. And I was not in denial. I knew what was going on. I had been in some denial when she relapsed because in my understanding, she had relapsed for about a month before I figured it out. Because I didn't want to figure it out, right? I wanted to stay on that paint cloud. I will say from my personal experience, it is possible to have peace without being in denial, but it did take work. It took working this program. It took working to understand the disease of alcoholism and how it affects the people who suffer from it and how it affects me as a co-sufferer, a codependent, and to start to do the work of the steps. Because for me, that's where the real recovery came. So 
difference between peacemaker and peacekeeper. That one's that one's harder. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that one is hard. I I will say that whole idea of peace and denial. When I was in denial, I was just numb, and I don't want to live my life numb. Yeah. So denial for me wasn't peaceful. It it was Mm -hmm. just being numb. But does numbness maybe feel like peace when you don't know what peace really feels like? It 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 might, and maybe that's why it is such a survival skill for so many of us. I'm sure denial protected me for a long, long time. Yeah. Now that I know different, now that I can have awareness of the crisis and the chaos and still have moments of, if not peace, at least moments of serenity, or I can still laugh. I can be in a meeting and enjoy it, even though I know there's something bad going on Mm -hmm. in my loved one's life. Mm -hmm. Now that I know that difference, I don't want to be numb anymore. I don't want, I don't want to be in denial. But until I knew the difference, I would have thought, that probably was peace. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I hadn't thought about numbness as sort of a, a substitute for peace. Peacemaker, peacekeeper. Yeah, that peacemaker, peacekeeper. Peacekeeper sounds controlling to me. Yeah. And it might make me like it, <laughs> which is dangerous. But that's sort of a red flag to me. If I'm the peacekeeper, my interpretation of it is I'm in charge of other people's peace. I'm in charge of my own. I, I don't know that it yeah. feels a little bit like I'm trying to control what's happening that might not be mine to control. Yeah. To me, I get this feeling of keeping peace at any cost. Yeah. Which at this point in my life doesn't feel good peacemaker that's still a little bit i mean the phraseology is a little bit controlling but it feels more like being a mediator rather than a rather than a controller i don't know i'm i'm going to throw this question out to those who are listening share your thoughts with us on peacemaker peacekeeper what does it mean to you? Because I'm confused. We got a share from Alina about face-to-face meetings, which was our episode number 57. Alina's been listening through our back catalog and sharing her thoughts on those. Hi, my name is Alina. I just wanted to share on episode 57 about face-to-face meetings in the Al-Anon program. You know, I'll have to admit that my meeting time has been lacking and limited and and everything like that. There's really no excuse, I guess, but I do work a lot of hours. I try to make time for my workout because it does help me mentally and physically. When I do make it to a meeting, I know that I do feel better. I know that there was a meeting that was canceled in my area. And then also the meeting that I originally started going to. And I really like, I know the last few times I've gone, it just, 
is different and there's some, you know, dominating times during the meeting that makes me feel uncomfortable. And I know I just got to work my way through it and just kind of maybe share a little more and kind of go a little more and maybe, you know, I'll think differently. I know that unity is important in a meeting and without that, then there wouldn't be a program for all of us. I know I need to like focus on that a little more. I think there might be another meeting, a Thursday meeting. It's kind of small and I usually like going to it, but I think that one might be canceled as well. I don't know. I'm really bad about wanting to travel distances to go to a meeting. And, you know, that's why I try to gravitate and embrace a little bit more of the other aspects of my recovery. I love the podcast. I think it's changed my life really because it helps my mind and helps me be in that serenity and keep it. I do try to meet with my sponsor more and read more and journal more and just be that much more. I really try to there's one particular Al-Anon friend who got me actually involved in this podcast and stuff. So I'll say hi to her in case she's listening, but Krista, I always talk to her and, you know, we reason things out together and I don't know, it's just nice to have that, you know, that friendship and sharing our experience, strength and hope and just being there for each other. And so I try to, you know, because I don't go to these meetings as much as I used to, I probably need to go. And I do see a benefit in it being face to face with someone and being in a room full of people and being of service and just reading the steps and the traditions during the meeting. I know I need to get involved in that again. So this was a good reminder. I thank you for your topic and I thank you for your shares. Thank you for sharing, Alina. Hope to hear more. What's our last song for the day? Our last song selection is I Surrender by Hillsong. It is just a beautiful song about surrendering to a higher power. I I play this one often in the morning. I have it in, on my phone. And it it just gives me a peaceful feeling when I... I try now to get up every morning and do a little meditation and do my Al-Anon reading. And I start off my day with this whole idea of surrendering to a higher power. All right. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for listening. And please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.